This is Jerry Ratcliffe with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Deborah Peel has been an innovator and leader in the development of crime analysis for over 20 years. We chat about the value of crime analysis to police leaders, the importance of data quality, crime analysis in Comstat and DDAX, and the emerging role of analysts in evidence-based policing. Welcome to another episode of Reducing Crime and another theme tune from a classic cop show. And I assume you know this one. I've done ride-alongs in unmarked covert police cars in Camden, New Jersey, where the lookouts for street-level drug operations used the name of this cop drama as a warning that police were around. If those kids knew it, you should. Last month was, of course, Starsky and Hutch. A few episodes ago, I chatted to Hans Menos in the park by Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where the Declaration of Independence was signed. This month, I met Deborah Peel in the iconic National Mall in Washington, D.C. Deborah has been a leader in crime analysis for over 20 years, and she has the distinction of having worked with small agencies at the state police level, and she spent five years working for the NYPD. While working with the New York City Police Department, she pioneered and led the development of a new civilian crime analysis role, developing, recruiting, training and supervising dozens of new analysts across the city. She has extensive knowledge at the national level of both Comstat and DDAX, the Data-Driven Approaches for Crime and Traffic Safety, a partnership between the Department of Transportation's National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the National Institute of Justice. Deb received the International Association of Crime Analysts 2017 Presence Award, and she was the first recipient of the Brian Hill IACA Memorial Scholarship in 2019, in recognition of her efforts to support and mentor crime analysts around the world. Brian was a smashing bloke who, like Deb, worked tirelessly to promote excellence in crime analysis. I'm sure he would have been delighted by the IACA's choice. This is very much my first behind-the-scenes look at podcasts. Well, you're about to see... One of the most important parts of it, which is me change the batteries. <laughs> That's the classy bit. <laughs> That's the bit they well, don't teach in podcast school. Check the batteries. It's no different than giving a presentation and you've got everything set up and nothing is working. And there's nothing worse than when you've got a room full of students or people who are <laughs> yes. taking the class. And there's you trying to demonstrate that you really do know how PowerPoint works. When all you can see is they have no idea where on their hard drive their presentation is. Yes. So I always yes. try to get there early for the six P's because proper aspiration yep, yep. prevents piss poor performance. And then you watch academics right. do it endlessly throughout their career because academics are the worst presenters. Yes. <laughs> they have the most practice and they're still crap I, at I, it. I have real challenges with academics. You think yeah. you have challenges with academics? <laughs> so you may have Christ, noticed. you should try working with them. <laughs> I try to be a little more out there on Twitter. I don't recommend it. Well, I know. But it's also my first major engagement with some of the uh, EBP people. The evidence-based policing practitioners and the academics, yeah. um, And I I do feel a bias against crime analysts. 
and I do think we can be friends, but I also get feeling a little alone out there because there's rarely ever another analyst that will pipe in. Analysts tend to be a tad introverted. I'm not sure I see that same bias against analysts. Where are you seeing that? Well, I think someone did a presentation about, you know, comparing this year to last year is, you know, not, not appropriately. That was me. <laughs> No, it wasn't you. You were there, but it wasn't you specifically. Certainly, it's not inappropriate to do that only. But when you are on the ground, sitting this close to your chief every day, and your chief simply wants to see that, he right. just wants to see that, you can elaborate on that and articulate to him what that means in the context, but he wants it. Right. So you have to give it. And from an and analyst's then, perspective, he's the client or she's yes, the client. And if that's what they want, you've got to say, this you, is why this is not any good, right? Right. Well, you say, you know, butt chief, blah, blah, blah. That could be a new term, by the way, just to call butt everybody chief. butt chief. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because... I, I'm sure there's quite a few analysts already calling their chief this, the butt chief. Well, yeah. sure. <laughs> You've worked not just with NYPD, but you've also worked with tiny agency. Newton was how many police officers in Swan, roughly? 175. And I thought that was whew, when I got there. And you were there for a number of years as yes. working in the analysis side. And then you also worked with the state police in Massachusetts yes. as well. So you've seen agencies at state level, small municipality and the NYPD, which is, you know, I've heard of them. They're not a rural police department. <laughs> no. How many members have they got? They're like 30,000 plus sworn. 37,000. Yeah, that's a few take. folk. Yeah, yeah, that's a few people. And 50,000 total working there. It's its own empire. Yeah. So what was it like working on the, 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 the Comstat side from an analyst perspective? I love NYPD. Certainly NYPD has things they can do better. But in general, it is light years beyond almost any other agency in terms of the things that they consider and think about in what they're doing. And Comstat is such a big and valuable part of that. It's not perfect. And I don't know that it can ever be replicated again because it's 25 years in the making of consistency in this structure and format. And it's more than just a meeting once a week. It's, it's the way that the agency lives and breathes. Elaborate on that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Everyone from the very smallest precincts up to the very largest and most violent in you know, Brooklyn and the Bronx, everybody prepares for ComStat every week like they are going to be behind that podium and are going to have to answer the, the critical questions. How often does a precinct come back to ComStat? So there are eight patrol boroughs and the boroughs rotate but if something big happens in the week you could be called back if you were just there last week and the normal rotation would be about every six to eight weeks give or take a borough comes back so when the borough is called back every precinct in the borough comes with it right. and there are no surprises the precincts that are under the gun know that on monday that they're going to be could be behind the podium and they also get a sense based on what their numbers look like, what's gone on. You hope they do, right? They have between, you know, Monday and Thursday morning to prepare. They're told the cases that are going to be focused on. I mean, everything's fair game. When you say cases, are we talking about individual cases like a shooting or a robbery? Yes. They're not looking at just the overall numbers. No, not at all. And that's where I think people lose the importance and the value of ComStat. ComStat is very case focused and very um, investigative focused, but it's very much about what should have been done that wasn't done, and what are you going to do about preventing the next shooting? 
So isn't that micro kind of case level a bit too micro level for an inspector or a captain who's running one of the precincts in the NYPD? Sure. So the CO, the commanding officer of the precinct, is there. They give a brief opening statement of, you know, hello, chief, this is, this is where we're at over the past 28 days. This is what's evolved. Kind of a warm up. And try to take up as much time as possible. Yes, they do. And then that's pretty much that ends the CO's role. The rest of it is the squad commander, meaning the detective commander for that precinct. It might be whoever is leading narcotics, vice. It could be the precinct CO might have to answer something. It's more the next level down that have to be prepared to answer. One of the criticisms of Comstat that I'll be upfront that I've leveled at it is it tends to be very short-term focused. So there's a, an absence of looking at long-term problems that have existed for a year or two. And there's, there's very little space in Comstat for the development of problem-oriented policing, for example. I don't think that's the case. The focus is always on the 28 days, so it's called the period. But it's focused on the 28 days within the context of the recent history of that borough and precinct. So everything is recorded. Everything is reviewed. You know, then Chief Shea was, got a lot of publicity about sleeping in his office to prepare. Chief Shea is? Chief Shea is now the police commissioner. Indeed. At the time, he was chief of crime control strategies, which is responsible for Comstat. So this was in the last few years? Yes. And he did really bring Comstat to another level. He's a brilliant police tactician. Tactician, yeah. tactician yes. So quick. And his mind's like a vice. So that sounds like it's awfully dependent on his personal charisma, abilities, and characteristics. So how do you then translate the benefits of Comstat to other agencies? Because I know you've worked with other agencies on Comstat, yet retain that capacity. Because I do worry that Comstat can end up being very short-term. Sure. And that's precisely what I think communities have recently been complaining about police not doing long-term community building problem-oriented policing but just focus on numbers and ped stops and and and, and short-term activity that can be very proactive but at the same time can be perceived negatively a good comstat is a major commitment it, it doesn't come easily and i think the key for the chief of any size agency is the fact that Chief Shea, for example, knows all the answers to the questions he was asking. He's asking if you know the answer. He's prepared in that way. And the whole point is to bring forward the others to what needs to be accomplished. So no chief anywhere should enter into a, a ComStat blindly. So I encourage every analyst, whether their chief wants to do this or not, to send their analysis to the chief ahead of time. Ideally, the analyst and the chief will go over it together so the analyst can point out some things. But at the very least, the analyst should say, chief, here's my analysis for Comstat. Please let me know if you wanna to get together and go over these things. So the chief should not see that at the same time that everyone else sees it. Right. So that he or she can prepare questions and have a longer term view. The questions that the chief asks in Comstat meetings really do set the tone for a department, don't they? Yes. They really dictate the type of activities that are going to happen on the street. Right. But let me say that in the context that what distresses me at this point in my profession 
is that so many agencies can't even get those numbers prepared. They don't know with any degree of accuracy what's up and what's down. And Are we really at the stage in 2020 when there are lots of departments out there that have no idea what their crime numbers are? Mm-hmm. That's quite terrifying. Mm-hmm. Terrifying is a good word for it because there's, there's no excuse for it. There's reasons for it that I understand. The technology can be challenging. Vendors can be misleading. IT people can be very guarded and protective of things. There's, there's lots of you know, reasons to understand why it happens, well, I think there but are it lot shouldn't of, happen. There are a lot of police departments out there working with legacy systems that are much yes. more designed to manage individual cases and not to get aggregate kind of numbers out. Right. Still, in 2020. And it stresses me out that quality report writing and quality data collection and analysis are not viewed as critical to public safety. Because the other thing is NYPD's obsession in a good way with patterns. So they define a pattern as only when you believe it's the same perp or group of perps that have committed that, that series of crimes. So this seems to be a new area where crime analysis is going into the area of social network analysis and looking more at groups rather than not just hotspots. Maybe one level below social networking just in the sense that a pattern starts with recognizing that there is a level of activity that is outside the norm. Seems to be the loudest motorbike in the whole of Washington DC right now. It's like a crotch going rocket. Going by us. Yeah, there's a crotch reason. rocket going past right now, yeah. So, you know, robberies, for example, up in the 28 days, up a little, one standard deviation is a condition. But how do you explain to a chief what a standard deviation is? That sounds like, that's like algorithms. Never, you know, the first rule of yes. algorithms is don't talk about algorithms. You don't. You just say, chief, the stuff in yellow looks like mm, maybe there's a problem developing. The stuff in red, we got a problem. Right. That I think is lost on a lot of analysts is their unwillingness to translate what they do into a language that can be understood by the decision maker who's reading it. So the analysts would then go, look at that see you know, what are these how close together are they what do they have in common do we have anything that suggests it's the same suspect do we have any video do we have suspect descriptions and there is a very sophisticated process and format for how a pattern is identified made official and then the detectives are obligated to act upon it so that's in the NYPD but for most of the agencies out there I worry that those kind of standards for what becomes known as a group or a gang or an organized kind of, or a relatively disorganized in many cases, crime group. The standards of what counts and what doesn't count aren't really well established. I mean, sure. you, you've had to work on it in the NYPD, but in other agencies, it just seems very ad hoc and the analysts well, are just kind of making stuff up as they go. Yes, that happens. But we're not even talking about gang activity or any organized group. This is more ad hoc 18 networks. to 24 year old who goes out and breaks into cars or does something and occasionally he or she may do it with a buddy. Okay. And they don't shy away from two hit patterns. We even joked about the one hit pattern where you're reading an incident report and you can just tell this is not the first time this guy has done this. So obviously it can't be a pattern by itself, but you might go look back at past incidents to see was there something that 
that fit this. So you're looking for repeat and MO type stuff? Not just for the sake of the pattern, but identifying a pattern gives patrol and detectives a mission. So that seems a really important distinction because, you know, if we're a profession in the 21st century, if we're just telling people to jump in a car and go out and answer 911 calls, we're reactive police departments at that point. Right. If you're sending people out with a mission, then it's a profession and they can be proactive. Somebody once put it nicely that at the very least an officer should know when they're driving out of the yard at the beginning of the shift whether they're turning left or turning right. Because if it doesn't matter, then they haven't got a mission and they're just a reactive department. That's exactly it. And I think we proved back in 1972-ish that that didn't work. Yeah, but I think some people so, have still got to catch on to that, right? Yes! It's taken a while yes. for that research to filter through, right? Yes. You have seen a bunch of other agencies through your work with DDAX and you've been a, a trainer and a, taking a lead role in that. Tell me a little bit about DDAX. Um, DDAX is data-driven approaches to crime and traffic safety. So it's very much about efficiency. What's the underlying philosophy of, of DDAX? It's a place-based philosophy. So the idea is that where people congregate in your average city or town, they are going to be victims of various crimes. Mm -hmm. And there's likely to be various types of traffic crashes traffic violations. Almost every community of, of any size has these areas where crime and crash hotspots overlap. So if you can identify those areas and just be strategic about how you respond, make sure that your traffic guys are aware of the crime issues in that area. Make sure your general patrol guys are aware of traffic and crash issues that are in that area. Because generally these things have been seen as very much separate. You know, yes. if you have a reasonable size agency, you're going to have a bunch of traffic folk and you're going to have everybody else or a bunch of other folk in patrol. And never and the they, two shall meet. Communicate, they don't talk. Communication, please. We certainly don't do that. I, can, I mean, I can remember from back in my time, you know, back in the 1980s, being on patrol in the East End of London and going to see crime victims. And they saying like three police cars drove by yeah. and I didn't have the heart to tell them because we had a traffic garage just around right. the corner and they were on a completely different radio network. They yep. just did their own thing. And this is DDAX is an attempt to overcome that. And it's an attempt to add value to traffic enforcement. That's the Department of Transportation's you know, piece in it. Because generally in this country, we don't do traffic enforcement or traffic crash prevention very strategically. You just have some guys that are assigned to it and they issue some tickets every day. Well, generally they hunt in the areas where they're gonna get the most tickets, yes. but those aren't necessarily the areas where they could also have a preventative role for crime. Right, and crashes, because crashes you know, hurt people, kill people as much as, as crime does. Um, NYPD is around 330 you know, murders a year, give or take, and around 250 or so fatal crashes every year. But there's a huge operation dedicated to crime and not so much to crashes. So if you're going to assign people to traffic enforcement, why not do it strategically? What's the evidence of effectiveness of DDAX? Are there studies out there that show that, that there is a community safety benefit? There is. There is a, a lot of research out there um, emphasizing the value of place-based policing sure. and just identifying those places. So in a general sense, that covers both addressing crashes and crime. Hotspots policing um, is one of the most effective yes. strategies of policing, and we've known that for 20 years. Yeah, And that is the heart of it. But very few analysts are focused on identifying those crash hotspots and then also digging in further to look at the causal factors of those crashes. 
Is it a philosophical difference? They're, they're just not thinking about it? Or is it because there are technical difficulties in terms of different databases type of thing? I think it is a philosophical and cultural difference. Some people like traffic. A lot of people don't want any part of it. And then there are the technical issues. The state of quality in crash reports is even more abysmal than crime reports. Well, it's sexy to work in crime and you get overtime at court, yes. but you don't get any of that with traffic, right? No. Even though it, it makes it can make a huge contribution to public safety. Just the you know ability to stop someone who has committed a clear traffic safety violation, not an administrative violation, but going too fast or going through red lights or failure to yield is a big one in terms of injuries. And just engaging with that person about what just went on can give you a realm of intel to begin with. But also just having that level of communication, it's another opportunity to engage with your citizenry, make them aware of these issues, make them aware of those crash hotspots. You don't have to give a money ticket to everybody. So it can actually, through good analysis, it can lead to a problem-oriented policing solution rather than an just a, a single enforcement one. Yes. Okay. So there, there can be some public reassurance and there can also be some prevention. And my role in, in all this is very much about the analysis, but in trying to make it clear to the people attending how much quality data collection matters and why the misspelling of a street makes such a difference, or the misspelling of someone's name, or the wrong date and time. And, you know, they often just don't know, number one. But I also emphasize cops have so much to think about when they respond to a call. What am I going to? What might it really be? Will the people speak English or will they speak some other language? Will someone be hurt? Will I need to get an ambulance? Will someone have a weapon? Will I have to make an arrest? If so, what are all these things they oh, have to think about? I've been looking at Philadelphia Police Department data, and it's amazing the number of calls that come in as what seems to be health and ends up being a crime incident, yes. or the stuff that comes in being a crime call and you get all, you know, officers right. get all kind of tense up for that, and then ends up just being a mental health or a community safety type of issue. I think increasingly we have no idea what officers are turning up to when they take the initial call. So you're absolutely right. There's so much to think about. And there's real ramifications if they forget something or, or don't you know, do something that they should have. So I try to stress that to analysts. And that's where that technology piece really matters. We need to make it as easy as possible for them to, to collect the data that we need and for the systems to work for them. What are the sorts of questions that police chiefs should be asking of their analysts that, in your experience, they're not asking? It has to be, you know, in the context of what the agency can accomplish at that moment in time. That's a very good way of putting it. Most police chiefs now know that they should be using data in one way or another. They might not know exactly what that means, but they usually know they have a computer-aided dispatch system and they have a records management system. So they'll hire an analyst and expect that analyst to to do something with, with all of that. They don't know what. I'm being biased here because I've done some of the, the similar type of consulting with agencies. I don't know if your experience has been the same, but I tend to find that police chiefs are unwilling to go to the analyst and say, what is it that we should be doing that we're not doing? They have a tendency to ask for specific analysis, not ask, what can you do? What could we do better in this area? They don't like to ask the open questions. They like to ask the micromanaged yes, questions. That's very, very true. And I think it's a little bit of a um, clash of well-meaning people because analysts like myself tend to be a little introverted and willing to be in that support role. So there is the natural inclination to say, yes, chief, sure, 
and then the chief is coming, not entirely sure what to do with this person that they've just hired. And so they'll ask a question or two and, and walk away. I think they're also unwilling to admit they don't know how to use an analyst. I mean, it's not like yes. any chief makes it to chief on the strength of being indecisive. No, but they're also not always sure that they want to have anyone digging further for any more bad news. Like they've got enough issues to deal with. And now, you know, what if this person uncovers all this stuff? That's why I always respected people like Chuck Ramsey, the former Philadelphia and Washington DC Metro, because he was all about digging into the data because his approach was, look, I don't mind bad news. I just hate surprises. Yes, exactly. Aren't surprises more likely now that more and more agencies are putting their data online? So now a journalist can download a pile of data and start asking really searching questions. Yes. I think certainly for some agencies, uh, there is that fear, but it's just as possible that some agencies have been coasting a little bit on inaccurate data. So it's easy to put some numbers together and format it in such a way that it makes a really nice presentation, but who's going to be able to dig into it and you know determine how, how true that is? And now with more and more open data, there's more chance of somebody coming, calling bullshit on your stuff. Yes, yes. And I, I think that's a little bit unique to, to policing. Does that increase the value of analysts, do you think? I hope so. You know, in every crisis, there are opportunities. And I think this current crisis will create some opportunities for analysts to be more valued. It's just still so often such a struggle. So many of the analysts I work with have to spend so much time cleaning the data because of the systems they have to work with. And the fixes aren't always so complicated and don't always cost money, but no one fixes it. They get this jumbled mess of exports and they gotta go cleaning it all up. And by the time they finish cleaning it all up, there's almost no time to analyze and it's a new week and they gotta start that whole process again. So many analysts I've spoken to say, I don't need more software, I don't need more fancy databases, I need more time to do good work. Yes, yes and they, they need to be supported in that effort, and not just for their sake. I, I try to emphasize that because these are documents that ultimately end up in court. That is what really matters. You know, we talk about um, NIBRS coding errors, for example, National Incident-Based Reporting System. So the, the newer version of the Uniform Crime Report. So, so our, our attempt nationally here in the United States to try and nationalize standards for crime reporting, the yes. kind of thing that other countries have been doing for 20, 30 years. <laughs> yes, we've managed to make it incredibly complicated. We're number one, we're just catching up. If you're a crime analyst getting a job now with an agency of a couple of hundred officers or more than that, or working in a larger agency but working in a district, what are the skill sets that analysts need to have now? I would prioritize just a, a comfort level around data. I'm almost looking for that analyst who, often like myself, you know, sometimes likes data more than people because you're going to spend a lot of time digging around in, in that data. So pretty much any academic then. <laughs> the people I work with always joke, I, I like to tell other analysts that on a rainy Friday night, if I have decent wine and some popcorn and a big pile of data, pretty happy. You have a very low bar for happiness. It can be achieved a pretty much. Friday night. Oh, okay. Yeah, not just any Friday night. I'll move to Britain and every Friday night is going <laughs> yeah. to be your idea of heaven. There's a reason I left. So, you know, just that comfort level. And 
I have found, you know, through hiring 100 analysts, that some of our quality institutions do not necessarily instill that in people because they're dealing primarily with an already formatted spreadsheet of data. Yeah. So they just push some buttons and it appears on a map and then they tell me, I know how to use Excel, I know how to map, and they don't. I learned when I was uh, doing my PhD in geography that analysis is 80% massaging the data. Yes. 10% doing analysis and 10% trying to understand what the hell you just did. Exactly. I worry now about universities because so much data is online and it comes yes. cleaned. Yes. That students have no experience of dealing with the reality of it. In a previous episode of this podcast, um, my old mate Jeff Alpert and I were, were complaining at some length about people who are doing analysis of police data with no understanding of what the data actually really means, the context right. of how it's collected, what it means. You know, you see a crime event, but there's almost a, a lack of connectivity with the idea that that's an apartment building. Right. Or there's somebody there who was weeping on the officer's shoulder trying to convey information while they lost their life savings or they lost something really important to them. Yep. And that lack of context when you just remotely step away from policing and just download a data set. And I worry about that in research too, because I feel as though there's a, a lot of research produced by people who who haven't spent much time inside a department and don't know where that data comes from. You mean every economist then? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are a lot of discussions around where analysts should be located because there's always a kind of organizational challenge. Should they be closer to the frontline officers to get that quality information that enhances their, their data? Or should they be closer to the headquarters and the chief to have more influence with the analysis they produce. And you can't say both. No. What I first look for in new analysts is that rare gem that has spent some time working their way up from smaller agencies to larger agencies. Because in the smaller agencies, they will have no choice but to be close to the cops on the street so that they have a sense of that. But so often now that doesn't happen. And so then I think what is most critical is that they be closest to the people who are asking the questions. Right. And then you can dig your way down and try to get a better understanding of that. But it's, it's very hard to dig your way up. You know, I want analysts to have some influence. I always feel bad when you see these analysts struggling. You know, maybe if they change the font they use or the color of the heading of their weekly report or if they post it on the intranet rather than email it, maybe that'll make a difference. That's not the stuff that makes the difference. If all of the officers of all ranks are held accountable to responding to the analysis, then the analysis is going to be valuable. I had dinner once with Mark Lowenthal, who's a former deputy director in the CIA, and very astutely he said, you know, an analyst has really earned their pay for that day when a different decision gets made that would have happened if you hadn't yes. delivered your analysis. If you deliver an analysis and you end up with a different decision, go home. You've earned your pay for that day. That's what I always tell analysts that they should strive to achieve is that one way or another, a cop is going to see what you put together and they're going to go, hmm, I'm going to watch for that. I'm going to look for that. I'm going to head in that direction something they would not have done prior to seeing your analysis, then that's good, actionable stuff. We have to think about retraining because the university system is the complete antithesis of influencing decision makers. It's all geared towards, here's my literature review, here's my data, here's all the analysis I did. It's a huge justification for how I get to my last paragraph. 
But a cop who's about to jump in a car and wants to know whether they should turn left or right out of the yard needs that last paragraph up front yes. and maybe none of the rest of it. Right. But nobody exactly. wants to do that. Everybody wants to justify how hard they've worked. Yes. And I'm also a big believer in not every patrolman needs to know the intricate details of of everything. So they don't need to know about what a standard deviation is? No, <laughs> they don't need to know z-scores. They don't, they don't need that. You know, what they need is that there are some expectations about what they're going to accomplish in between responding to calls. Something. A mission. Yes. But they don't, need to, they don't need to have read the book with all the intel behind the mission. No. And the more it will work out for them, they'll rise up in levels where they need to know a little bit more to better define that mission. So is, is that the kind of foundation behind your idea that it's more important for the analysts to be working with the chiefs and the decision makers? I think so. The slog up is too much. And I cringe when analysts are asked to produce a little bit of work and then we'll, we'll put it out to everybody and see what they think. That's why I value CompStat so much because it's a whole different experience if those commanders are asked to actually respond to it. Well, what you're doing They is... don't have to like it. They have sure. to use it. But what you're doing there is really breaking down the barriers between the decision makers and the analysts. I cringe when I see analysts produce something for, you know, a sergeant who's in charge of a crime analysis unit or an intel unit who doesn't know a damn thing about crime analysis or intelligence. And the analysis has to go through so many filters of yes. people who don't know what they're talking about before it gets to the chief that half the time good work gets lost. And we've all had the experience of producing some work and had absolutely zero impact and nothing's ever come of it. And that's disheartening for anybody, isn't it? Very much, very much. And it's also hard to train people for those scenarios. So I, I see these big distribution lists, and I think the larger the distribution list, the less the influence. If you go and give one thing to one person, if nothing happens, you know yes. who's responsible for nothing happening. If you send an email out to 100 people, nothing's going to happen with that, because everybody's going to think 99 we other kiss people... kiss it off on, to somebody else. There's 99 other people who'll do that. Yes, yes. Commissioner Bratton used to say all the time, you know, every analyst has as much of a chance of saving a life as anyone else here today. Well, Bill Bratton kind of knew what he was talking about, didn't he? A little bit, yeah, yeah, especially about stuff like that. What was it like working with him? <laughs> he doesn't know this, but he's a, you know, a big reason how I got into this. When he was a candidate for the Boston Police Commissioner's job, the Boston Globe did a spread of the five finalists, I think, you know, their picture and you know, a little bit about each one. And uh, a local chief friend of mine said, this Bratton guy, he's got some good ideas. He thinks that, you know, if you count things and you keep track of how crime goes up and down, you could actually respond to it. No shit, Sherlock. And he had, it, had that <laughs> spread across the hood of, of his car. And I remember thinking, well, it doesn't sound that revolutionary to me. Yeah, when, <laughs> when was this? Keep track? In the 1840s? Yeah. <laughs> well, don't worry. Bratton still probably won't know because I'm sure he doesn't listen to this podcast. I'm amazed. Probably not. I'm amazed anybody does. But I became a huge Bratton groupie. You know, he's from Massachusetts. I'm from Massachusetts. So I followed his career and he was always very, very gracious to me. I'm going to ask you one more thing because I'm interested in your response here. With the rise of evidence-based policing, uh, in the last you know, 10, 15 years, but certainly much more focus on it within policing. Now we have an American society of evidence-based policing that's started up in the last few years. This is a new role for analysts, isn't it? Yes, very much. One of the things that I think is, unfortunately, but is very new to crime analysis is just the evaluation piece. 
So we do focus a lot on that in DDAX workshops because it's so critical to know if what you're doing is having an impact. And typically, analysts don't do a lot with police activity data. You know, see where your cops were in relation to what was going on. Are they in the right areas? Does it need to be tweaked? Is your level of dosage appropriate? Dosage is a great word because I think that's something that's lost on so many people. It's not about how many cops you have, it's about what they do. If they park up in a car and they slide the seat back and they start catching up on Facebook, does anybody catch up on Facebook anymore? I'm probably, <laughs> you know, TikTok or whatever has not been banned yet. Yeah, they're not doing anything. No. But if they're actually rolling down the window, they're speaking to people, they're rolling up on people and saying hello, you know, they're out of the car, that's a very different level of activity than just yes. sitting on the backside. And you can see that in the data. So many times a really good plan will go awry right out the door. Just this minor tweak can mean the difference between having an impact or not. And the analysts can, can see that and can find that. I love it when I go to an agency, they say, well, we have these hotspot grids. And I say, well, what do you do differently in the hotspot grids from anywhere else? Can I actually tell the difference? Right. You know, because you've got workers and you've got shirkers. Right. Are it's, you sending the workers in there to actually do stuff? It's not always that they're not doing the right things. It's just sometimes without the data, success is lost. There are usually elements in there somewhere. An analyst can find where things have been done really, really well. And they can say, look at this. We did X over here and it's clearly had an impact. Let's do more of X. And cops are mission-driven individuals. So if you can show them that there has been some success with X, they will do more of X. So the clues are really hidden in the data. It is. It's like national treasure. <laughs> you're, you're the Nicholas Cage of crime analysis. It's not just, complicated. I'm not sure that's a compliment, well, actually. Well, no, I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> it, 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 there, there's so much in there, and I, and I love finding that success. And we rarely tap into even a, a, a tiny proportion of it. So what is the future for crime analysis? Have you got experienced crime analysts out there listening to this or, or chiefs or you know, police officers who work with analysts? What's the next big thing analytically on the horizon? So I think there's going to be more opportunities for crime analysts because of this current policing crisis, because we still have more agencies that don't have analysts than do. And they need to know what they're doing? They do. And there's always new tools, new ways to look at things things to learn just from the evidence-based folks, you know, just in terms of what are people looking at? What are people thinking about? What can I do next for my agency? I think you're right. There's a whole realm of evidence-based policing that a lot of analysts are not really up to speed on yet. And I think that would be great for them to, to really become a part of that whole movement. I think the real challenge now is that it takes a long time to get to a position as a crime analyst where you're making some decent money. And if you are good with data, there's so many other better paying opportunities out there. So there has to be this you know, passion about policing. I'm not so passionate about law enforcement by itself, but about the whole realm and science and profession of policing. Well, if you think about the skill set required for an analyst, it's data management, it's GIS, it's spatial analysis, it's writing reports, it's public speaking, it's talking to decision makers, and the amount that some of them get paid is just shocking. Yes, it's heartbreaking. Well, on that cheery note, Deb, should we, <laughs> should we bugger off and go get a drink yes, somewhere then? Yes, it works for me. Deb, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That was episode 28 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Washington, D.C. in August 2020. 
As always, transcripts of every episode are available at reducingcrime.com and new episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck. Hold up. 